there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. My topic, as you know, for the day is instruments of peace. And this prayer, of which you each have a copy, points to the old rugged cross. I think I would have to say that throughout my life, my favorite hymns have been those that are about the cross. When I was very small, I began singing those hymns. We sang, Jesus, keep me near the cross. In our family prayers, we sang beneath the cross of Jesus. And by the time I was 14, I don't remember if I said it before then, but I think I used to tell people that Beneath the Cross of Jesus was my favorite hymn. It still is one of my favorites, and there are so many. But I love the second stanza of that old gospel song. Oh, that old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. That's what it means to be an instrument of peace. He was that for us, wasn't he? It says in Isaiah 53, the punishment that was administered to him brought us peace. It was that punishment on the old rugged cross. And we know that there is no Christianity without the cross. Paul, the Apostle Paul, said, I am determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this beautiful prayer by St. Francis of Assisi, to me, is the most incisive and comprehensive statement of the practical outworkings of the Christian life, the most incisive and comprehensive statement. The first words are, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. And I'm reminded in a special way of the fact that an instrument does not act of itself. When I hear these accolades that people like Carolyn Teague, who really doesn't know me well enough to make it more realistic, that introduction, I know that I have nothing that I have not received. I want to be an instrument, and only an instrument, in God's hand. But it was a week ago last Monday that my husband and I went into Boston to the eye surgery place, and my husband underwent eye surgery on his left eye for glaucoma, which he's had for more than eight years. And as we checked in at the desk, I said to the nurse there, I said, I wish I, I just would give anything if I could watch this operation, because I am a frustrated doctor. I always thought I was going to be a doctor, and I started college as a, as a med student, pre-med, and uh, 
The nurse said, well, you can. She said, there's a TV screen right over there. You can watch it. Well, you can bet your life I sat myself down by that TV screen and I watched two brown eyes being operated on for cataracts, which is a very different kind of an operation. And then I saw a blue eye come on the screen. Well, the screen was about this big and the eye filled the screen. I mean, it was magnified. And it was absolutely incredible to watch as I realized, I assumed this had to be my husband since it was a blue eye, but then I wasn't quite sure. But in one second, a nurse came out from the operating room and she said, that's your husband. So I watched as the doctor took a pair of tweezers and lifted the film on the eye and then jabbed a hole with a pair of scissors and then went in with a knife. Now, of course, the knife looked to me like a fairly ordinary size light knife until I was realizing that the doctor was looking at this thing by, through a microscope. And that knife, I can't imagine how tiny it must have been and the other and the scissors and the tweezers. But that, those scissors and those tweezers and that knife couldn't have done one single thing on their own. They were at the disposal of a surgeon, a highly skilled ophthalmologist who, when my husband and I went the first time to visit him, after about, well, I guess we were in the middle of the conversation when he suddenly, when my husband, no, the, the surgeon suddenly turned to me and he said, you're not Elizabeth Elliot, are you? And I said, yes. How did you know? And he said, well, you know, I listened to your radio program. And he said, I remember you talking about your husband, whose name was Lars, which is a pretty unusual name, and you mentioned that he had glaucoma. So imagine that the Lord picked out a Christian man and probably one of the world's most skilled surgeons, and we were privileged to put ourselves in his hands. And the operation, for your information, was perfect as far as the doctor knows. It doesn't cure glaucoma, but it does stave off blindness for we don't know how long. So we appreciate your prayers. We thank you for those of you who knew about it and were praying for him. But those instruments, those tiny stainless steel instruments, do not work independently and autonomously. They lie at hand, ready to be used at the will of the operator and the owner. And that tells me something about my position before God. I am not my own. I'm bought with a price. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And this body of mine, tall, white, Anglo-Saxon, female, and aged, is an instrument. It's meant to be an instrument in God's hands. And you, in the one and only body that God gives you, whatever age, whatever color, whatever ethnic background, whatever set of genes and peculiarities and personality and all the rest that goes into making you what you are, is meant to be put completely at God's disposal. And that takes surrender. So for you note takers, that's point one. Surrender. You must let go, unclasp your hands, and put yourself totally at the disposal 
of the Lord Jesus. Back when I was a senior in college and was hoping that I could get the autograph of a very popular young man on the campus, whose name was Jim Elliott, I was surprised when he not only signed his name in my book, but he also put a scripture reference, 2 Timothy 2.4. Now, I didn't know what that was off the top of my head. He just put the reference. But you know, it didn't take me very long to get my Bible and thumb quickly through it to find that reference to see whether Jim might be giving me a cryptic message of some sort. And I assure you, there was nothing cryptic about it. It said, a soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. He must be holy at his commanding officer's disposal. Jim saw himself, as a junior in college, as disposable, little knowing how God would so literally and, in a sense, publicly dispose of him. He could not have imagined that anybody would ever hear his name outside of the jungles of South America where he believed God was calling him. He had made a surrender when he was a high school student. He had made the choice, which is the most important choice that any of us can ever make. Whose am I? Now, it's not an easy world to live in if we're going to live by that principle because it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to the secular mind, does it? We are being told insistently, inescapably, loudly, shrilly every day, have it your way. Do your own thing. If it feels good, do it. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, which is a choice, then the first thing you must do is to surrender yourself. Give up your right to yourself. The second thing is to take up the cross. That means suffering, doesn't it? What else could we imagine the taking up of the cross is about? It was an instrument of torture in Roman times. And Jesus says, take it up. That means a glad acceptance. A willingness to say, yes, Lord, I will accept this. I will take this. And the most distinctive thing to me about Glenda's testimony, and you've probably read many books by people who have similar backgrounds, but as one interesting man with whom we had dinner one night said to us, he's a man in the financial business, and he said, Glenda never allowed herself to be become a victim. She never thought of herself as a victim. The subtitle of her book, which is entitled Glenda's Story, is Led by Grace. And she surrendered those memories, the past, as the Apostle Paul did. He said, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's what surrender means. Back when I was a little girl, one of the most thrilling things that I ever got to do was to ride a train. And back in those days, trains were something else. How many of you can remember the steam engines? My goodness, I see one hand. I can't believe it. Am I the old? Oh, there's one more. Three or four of you. Well, there was just nothing, there was nothing 
that even comes close to the thrill of those tremendous roaring, steaming steam engines as they came charging into the stations enough to scare the soup out of you. But I loved going on those trains and we had the privilege every year of going on an overnight train from Philadelphia to New Hampshire, which is where we spent our part of our summer vacation. And I, by the time I learned to read, I learned that word surrender. I don't know whether I ever noticed it before, but I always saw that on the ticket it says this ticket must be surrendered to the conductor. Hand it over, that's all. It's not yours anymore. You carry the ticket until the conductor comes along, and when he comes along, you give him the ticket. In the same way, we are to present our bodies. It is a voluntary choice. God is not going to invade your life. He is not going to rob you of that which you would reluctantly give. He wants a willed, glad surrender. And that's why I've entitled my book on discipline, The Glad Surrender. And you know what the British publishers did to that book? They took off the word discipline. And when I objected, they said, well, you know, British people don't like that word. We won't be able to sell that book with the word discipline on it. And I thought, well, I certainly can't imagine that Americans like that word any better. But people have been buying it. It is a glad surrender. It is a choice, a willed conscious act, a deep personal exchange. I give up my right to myself. My rights now, Lord, are yours. You are, I am his, I am your property, Lord. You are my master. Oh, master, let me walk with thee. And he receives that gift, doesn't he? Gladly, lovingly, and permanently. And in exchange, he says to me, now, will you take up the cross? You have given me your life, and I would not be able to take up the cross because my hands would be full. But I have emptied my hands, given myself over to God, and now he says, take up the cross and follow me. This is exemplified most beautifully in all of history in that wonderful little teenage girl from Nazareth named Mary. I just read a book which said that scholars believe that she probably was not more than 14. That would have been the age, at least. Very often a Jewish girl would be engaged before that. But let's presume that she was 14 or 15 years old. She was engaged at the time. And she was visited in her humble home of Nazareth by a visitor who gave her a mind-boggling piece of news that she was to become the mother of the Son of the Most High. And Mary's response was first a simple, reasonable question, how can this happen? I'm not married. And then the angel explained how it could happen. And her response was an immediate surrender. Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it happen, as you say. And you and I are not ever going to qualify for being an instrument of God's peace until we give up our right to ourselves and hand it all over, gladly, willingly, and forever, and say, I hope daily, behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it happen, as you say.
And sometimes I'm reminded when I say those words myself of what I call the geriatric letter that I got from Addison Leach before he actually proposed to me. He wrote me a love letter. Now, Addison Leach was my second husband, and he was 18 years older than I was, so of course I assumed that I would be widowed again at some point. I didn't expect it to be as soon as it was. But he was a very uh, humorous man, a very charismatic personality, a brilliant man with a doctorate from Cambridge University. He'd written eight books, I think, and he was a popular speaker. But a man with a very down-to-earth, earthy mind. And he wrote me this letter outlining all the worst possibilities of what it might be for me to marry an old man. And at the bottom of the letter, I mean, for example, the day will come when you will have to clean my glasses. The day will come when you will have to drive the car. Well, I never dreamed that those things would come as soon as they did. At the bottom of the letter, he said, so what I'm telling you, Elizabeth, is here I am, all of me, for you, forever. But what kind of an offer is that? And isn't that exactly what you would think of saying to Jesus when you have surrendered your body, given him everything that you can possibly give him, and, and there isn't a day that goes by that I don't have to surrender something else. I did make a once-for-all choice when I was about 12 years old, but daily the Lord tests the validity of that commitment, doesn't he, in all kinds of ways. And so this sneaking thought comes into my mind when I make a new surrender and I say, well, yes, Lord, I give you this, but what kind of an offer is that? What are you going to do with that? Well, that's none of my business, is it? It's none of my business what God is going to do with my offering. And we need to remember that because sometimes we offer something we think unreservedly to God and it turns out that we've kept the part of it for ourselves and we were hoping for some credit or perhaps we really did it for other people and for what they might think about our spirituality. So God is asking us for an unreserved surrender for him give ourselves entirely to him and Paul says it is no longer I that live but Christ liveth in me and the life which I now live in the flesh in this one fallible mortal body that God gives me I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me do you want to be an instrument of God's peace it takes surrender all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. How many times I sang that, I don't know, probably hundreds. And each time I sang it, I would be smitten to the heart, to the conscience, by the imperfectness of my surrender. The following necessary decision is trust, the one that follows the first, surrender. And that is exemplified also in Mary. Did she know whether or not she might be stoned to death because the penalty for fornication in Jewish law was stoning to death? 
how was she ever going to convince anybody that she had not been unfaithful to her fiancé, Joseph? How would she convince the townspeople? How would she convince her parents? What would she say to Joseph? None of those things were raised as objections in Mary's mind. She just put herself totally at the disposal of God, trusting that God knew what he was doing. Do you really believe that? Do you really honestly, deep down in your heart, in your worst moments, believe that God still knows what he's doing? When a bomb was placed in front of a building in this city, where was God? It was the same place he was when his son was nailed to a cross. Still in charge, sovereign, powerful, loving, and wise. But we don't see the evidence so often. In fact, there are times when we look around and it seems as though there's a stunning array of evidence that proves that God is none of those things. Or perhaps that God doesn't exist. And that's when he says to you, to us, will you trust me? Will you place yourself at my disposal and allow me to do anything I want with you? So when I say, well, Lord, what kind of an offer is this? Here I am, all will be for you forever. But what kind of an offer is this? He says, trust me. I know what to do with that. Let me use you as an instrument. And then, of course, if we hear the Lord say that to us, we have all sorts of highfalutin ideas about what God might use us to be an instrument of. And I must confess with shame that when I went to the mission field, I was thrilled that God was calling me to the foreign field. My heroes had always been missionaries. My heroines and my heroes, many of them had sat at our dinner table. We six children had had the privilege of listening to these missionary stories firsthand. I had read missionary books all my life. We weren't allowed to do much else on Sunday afternoons except read missionary books. We went to missionary meetings and went, looked at missionary slides. And so it was perfectly natural that five out of the six of us children became missionaries. And the six has always been in Christian education. But I was thrilled that God was calling me to be a missionary. But I didn't know whether or not God might make me a missionary heroine. And I hoped that he would. And I went to a small tribe in the, in the western jungle of Ecuador. This was before I was engaged to Jim Elliott. I went to work with two English women in a small tribe of Indians called the Colorados. And I confess with shame that because it was my job to reduce that language to writing, nobody else had done that before. The two English women had not had the kind of training that I got here in Oklahoma at the university. But I, I visualized a book with Elizabeth Howard, which was my name then, Apostle to the Colorados. I thought that had a nice ring to it. Well, the Lord gave me the privilege of reducing that language to writing. For whom did I do it? Well, for him, of course. I was to be an instrument in his hand. And I had told him that I would trust him with the results of my offering. 
and all of the language material was stolen at the end of that year. All of it. There were no copies in those days, no Xeroxes. There were no tape recorders. Trust me, he says, Mary must have been bewildered. But you know, we don't hear a word more out of Mary. Very few words in all the Gospels. Do you know what the very last thing is that's recorded that Mary said? It was at the very first miracle when Jesus turned the water into wine. And Mary turned, Mary recognized the embarrassment of the master of the feast. And she called Jesus' attention to it. They have no more wine. And Jesus spoke to her in a way which sounds terribly curt and said, Woman, what have I to do with you? Or what is that to you? My time has not yet come. We don't hear Mary's reply to Jesus. Apparently she said nothing. She didn't rise up in self-defense. She turned to the servants and she said, do whatever he says. We don't know any other word that ever came out of Mary's mouth. Do whatever he says. And at that moment, his time came. His hour came. And, as you remember, he turned the water into wine. Mary's bewilderment and silence should be a tremendous lesson for you and me. If you're anything like me, and I hope that there aren't too many of you that are as bad as I am on this, but I am so curious. I want answers to everything. I want to argue. I want to analyze. I want to understand my husband, and I've given up on that, but I'm still trying. And when I'm bewildered, I don't, I'm not likely to keep silent. I want to do everything that I can to sort this out and unpack whatever the mystery is. And I look at Mary, that quiet, godly, modest, humble soul. Her bewilderment and her silence. She believed that she was totally secure in the hands of God. She was confident that whatever God was going to do to her, whatever it might cost, even if she was to be stoned to death, and of course I'm merely imagining that she must have thought of that, she was his instrument for the life of the world. It was Mary who became God Almighty's instrument in his hands to bring Jesus Christ into this world in human flesh. It was Mary's body Mary's blood, Mary's flesh, and later Mary's milk that nurtured the Lord of the universe. Could she have imagined that she would be chosen to do that? But it was because she was nobody from a little town which was a nowheresville, a laughable place, available, surrendered, trusting, her heart mattered to God, someone has said, more than the preservation of the Milky Way and the universe. And I think that's true. God is the creator of the universe. You know, it says in Genesis, in amazing understatement, and he made the stars. And those hands that made the stars were nailed to a cross, immobile helpless, fixed. 
Your heart, my heart, the heart of every one of us matters, I think, to God more than the preservation of the Milky Way and the universe. The glory and the grandeur comes out of humility and love. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, The glory which thou gavest to me, I have given them. But there won't be glory without surrender and trust. We will not be useful implements, instruments in his hands. In Philippians 4, verses 5 to 7, we read, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm tempted to be anxious. Trust cancels out anxiety. Do not be anxious about anything. The story is told of Ignatius of Loyola, famous missionary, that one of his subordinates said to him one time, when his life's work was threatened, asked him this question, what would you do if Pope Paul IV dissolved or otherwise acted against the Society of Jesus, which Loyola himself had founded, and to which he had devoted his life's energy and his gifts? Do you know what Loyola's reply was? I would pray for 15 minutes, and then I would not think of it again. I would pray for 15 minutes, and then I would not think of it again. A quiet heart, a surrendered heart, a trustful heart. We do not need to understand. I'm constantly pressed with the question that comes in my mail. Please tell me, Elizabeth, how this terrible thing, which they have described in maybe 15 pages, fits into God's pattern for good in Romans 8.28. How do I know? I don't know how it fits. Of course not. The pattern is so intricate, there are millions of pieces. God is engineering a universe, to use one metaphor, or he is weaving a tapestry, to use a different one. My life is but a weaving betwixt my God and me. I do not choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Sometimes he weaveth sorrow, and I, in foolish pride, forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unfold the pattern and explain the reason why. For now, ladies, it's none of our business. God wiped out my year's work. For what? For one thing, to show me that my ambition was not his ambition for me. He had other things that I could never dream of, things which I would never have dreamed of asking. Faith is a daily exercise. There are opportunities every day to trust God. 
every day something comes up about which I would naturally speaking worry. I don't think a day goes by that there isn't something that comes either in the mail or something that happens, something in our home, some discussion that Lars and I have that arouses in me anxiety. And so the Lord is saying to me then, that is his call. He is saying to me, will you love me? Will you trust me? Will you praise me? Spiritual fitness is a constant wrestle. But there is a deep, all-conquering strength that comes from God. I trust that these words, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace, will sink deep into your hearts. Remember the qualifications are surrender and trust, and one more thing, acceptance. When the worst thing that you can imagine happens, and the worst thing that I could imagine has happened twice in my life, the loss of two husbands, I can't change that fact, can I? There is nothing in the world that I can do to bring back my husband or to change my marital status, which is widow. Of course, it's not widow anymore, and I trust it's not going to be widow again, but the Lord knows all about that. But the Lord is asking me, will you accept what I have allowed to happen in your life? Glenda's story is a story of acceptance. The acceptance of a little child, amazing evidence of the fact that that child lonely, hated, abused, was led by grace. That's all it's about. Glenda would be the last person in the world that would ever want to take credit for this. She was floored when I said it's going to be a book. She was floored when I told her it was going to be on the radio. She was floored this morning when I said, you're going to have to come up on the platform. She didn't have anything to do with it except acceptance. And that is something we can do because that is a choice. And God has given us a will to choose to do his will. And God's grace goes to work on my nature. And he inspires me and he calls me and he loves me. And I can only respond. And what's the good of that? That's not my business. My response, as Mary's, ought to be, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. An unhesitating, yes, Lord. So let's look at those three conditions of discipleship. Number one, take that. Give up your right to yourself. Number two, take up the cross. And number three, follow me. Number one is no to myself and a relinquishment. Number two, take up the cross is yes to God. I cannot say yes to God until I have said no to myself. I don't know the point in your life this morning in which God is putting his finger and saying, will you relinquish this? Will you entrust it entirely to me? And will you accept the things you cannot change? Now, I'm subject to a certain amount of criticism because I emphasize this so much. But I do believe there are many things that we can change 
Some of them we ought to change. There are other things that we can change and we ought not to change. And one very clear, outstanding example is our husbands. God did not give us a husband in order for us to make them over. You know, as Rex Harrison sang in that song from My Fair Lady, she'll re let a woman in your life, she'll redecorate your home from the cellar to the dome and go on to the enthralling fun of overhauling you. Don't do it. We are not our husband's spiritual authorities. God wants us to accept many things that we're not supposed to do anything about. He wants us to accept all the things that we can't do anything about. And he certainly wants us to do something about the things which we ought to do something about. So if your little two and four year olds are acting like little demons, you're not to accept that. That is totally unacceptable behavior in a Christian home. So you are to do something about that, aren't you? I'm sure this is clear to you. But let's make an unhesitating acceptance, which means, again, opening my hands. When I've opened them in order to let go, then I open them in order to receive what God wants to give me. And, of course, it was, there was nothing painful about receiving the gift of Addison Leach. It was a gift I could never have imagined. I thought it was a miracle I got married the first time. Certainly couldn't imagine getting married a second time let alone a third. All of you for you forever. My answer was yes. And I want to say an unhesitating yes, Lord. He is my master. He is my protector from whatever the results of my obedience might be. And he is my quietness. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Now, I cannot do that if I'm not willing to relinquish my hatred. And that is perhaps the most destructive of all emotions. And I believe that medical science is discovering more and more of the physical results of hatred and anger. It's not natural for us to sow love where there's hatred. How can we do it? At the old rugged cross. We have to come to the foot of the cross and bring that hatred and open our hands and leave it there. And then start obeying God in loving that person. A woman was describing to me her terrible husband, and he did indeed sound dreadful. A perfectly ungetalongwithable man. And she was asking me the usual question, how am I supposed to handle this? And I said, treat him like an enemy. And she was shocked. Well, he is an enemy, obviously. He's acting like an enemy, so you're supposed to treat him like an enemy. And she said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, what did Jesus say about how to treat your enemies? Love your enemies. It doesn't come natural to anybody. But that's the command, isn't it? And so I bring my hatred to the foot of the cross, I leave it there, and I receive at the foot of the cross what I could never manufacture in my nature, which is love for that awful person. Where there is hatred, let me sow love.
Another quotation. I don't think I've ever heard of this poet, poet anywhere else. Maybe some of you are very familiar with him. The name was Ralph Hodgson. He came and took me by the hand up to a red rose tree. He kept his meaning to himself, but gave a rose to me. I did not pray him to lay bare the mystery to me. Enough the rose was heaven to smell and his own face to see. A statement of acceptance. I did not pray him to lay bare the mystery. Enough the rose was heaven to smell and his own face to see. Acceptance is an unhesitating yes, Lord. I will accept this wrong which has been done to me, and it is a real wrong. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And as I forgive them, I am to sow love. May God make us instruments of his peace. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.